All right. Now I got another backslider. Okay. <clears throat> She's all the way in the back. Was someone how far away people from the? We we were all up there. It's all good. We're just giving you a hard time. Um. All right. We are uh, after a one week hiatus. Um. We are returning to our consideration of the blessings of the new covenant in Christ's blood. Um. We've just. A, remind you what we've already done. We've uh, already covered the blessings of regeneration, justification, adoption, sanctification, good works, saving faith, and repentance. And we're not done. So this is <laughs> a very gracious, blessed covenant. Um, this will, this evening then, bring us to the blessing of the perseverance of the saints. But... <clears throat> As is my practice, I want to read where we're at actually in the confession. So, uh, again, we are in chapter 7, and we are looking uh, really at sections 2 and 3. And starting in section 2, it says, Since humanity brought itself under the curse of the law by its fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace. In this covenant, he freely offers to sinners life and salvation through Jesus Christ, on their part, he requires faith in him that they may be saved and promises to give his Holy Spirit to all who are ordained to eternal life to make them willing and able to believe. This covenant is revealed in the gospel. It was revealed first of all to Adam and the promise of salvation through the seed of the woman. After that, it was revealed step by step until the full revelation of it was completed in the New Testament. This covenant is based on the eternal covenant transaction between the Father and the Son concerning the redemption of the elect. Only through the grace of this covenant have those saved from among the descendants of fallen Adam obtained life and blessed immortality. Humanity is now utterly incapable of being accepted by God on the same terms on which Adam was accepted in his state of innocence. All right. <clears throat> so, on the topic of perseverance of the saints. This new covenant blessing is sometimes referred to um, by the idea of once saved, always saved. In fact, it's more often referred to, um, at least in our context, uh, by that phrase, once saved, always saved. Now, while this is correct, it has been extremely perverted by those holding to an antinomian decisional view of regeneration. And again, anti-nomian, anti-against, nomian the law, so against the law, particularly the law of God. Um, this is the idea that we can make a decision for Christ and then we can live like the devil himself, but God is now bound to make us go to heaven, right? Uh, so, God is not bound to honor that sort of faith. And, you know, we covered saving faith. Um, it has three parts, and we'll get into that again shortly. Um, but what I want you to see is that this is not the biblical doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, nor is it the confessional doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. This sort of view is what has understandably drawn criticism from Roman Catholics adherence to orthodoxy in all of its various forms, and Arminians. The thing is that though some would charge us with holding this view, nothing could be further from the truth. I join with the critics in denying antinomianism, and I think we all do. The 1689 Confession better explains the doctrine and blessing of the perseverance of the saints as we affirm it in chapter 17, section 1. <clears throat> so if you want to turn there, chapter 17, section 1, it says, those God has accepted, and I'm going to pause, okay? I'm not just going to read this. I'm actually going to try to explain this as we go, just to let you know. Those God has accepted in the beloved. Okay, that's a key. <laughs> He's not accepted us on anything in us. 
but rather in the beloved, and of course the beloved being the beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit. So this is a Trinitarian work. Told you we're not getting away from it. <laughs> One year later, I told you. <laughs> um, <clears throat> seriously, though, it's been about a year. Uh, so those God has accepted. God the Father has accepted in the Son, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit. And given the precious faith of his elect can neither totally nor finally fall from a state of grace, they will certainly persevere in grace to the end and be eternally saved because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Not because of anything in us, not because we made the right decision at some point in time, not because we're smarter than the uh, other guy who didn't make the right choice, not because of our works, not because of anything wrought in us, but rather the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Therefore, he still brings about and nourishes in them faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit that lead to immortality. Even though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet these things will never be able to move the elect from the foundation and rock to which they are anchored by faith. Again, we've covered this, but a faith that is itself a gift from God. So even that is not conjured up from within us, but rather given to us. <clears throat> the felt sight of the light and love of God may be clouded and obscured for them for a time through their unbelief and the temptations of Satan. In other words, this is something we're going to get into later, but assurance may not always be there. It may not always be present. Yet, God is still the same. They will certainly be kept by the power of God for salvation, where they will enjoy their purchased possessions. For they are engraved on the palms of his hands, and their names have been written in the book of life from all eternity. Notice the perseverance of the saints, just like all the other saving graces and blessings of the new covenant, is completely and wholly dependent upon God alone. <clears throat> the saints do not persevere because of something inherent within us. We persevere because God has chosen to preserve us. This is central to the very definition of the perseverance of the saints. Now we're getting to the heart of the matter. Louis Burkhoff defines the perseverance of the saints as that continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer by which the work of divine grace that is begun in the heart is continued and brought to completion. So it's God's work. It's not in any way ours. Also, <clears throat> it's not God merely being bound by promise because God is working. Okay, there's something happening here. God is the one keeping us. It's not we made a decision and now God is bound to honor our decision. Rather, God made a decision, changed our hearts, and his gifts and calling, because remember that faith that we have is a gift, are irrevocable. R.C. Sproul comments, <clears throat> quote, The perseverance of the saints could uh, more accurately be called the preservation of the saints, as this affirmation of the Westminster Divines makes clear, and he's referring to uh, chapter 17, section 2 of the Westminster Confession uh, when he's saying this. He says, The believer does not persevere through the power of his unaided will. God's preserving grace makes our perseverance both possible and actual. Even the regenerated person with a liberated will is still vulnerable to sin and temptation, and the residual power of sin is so strong that without the aid of grace, the believer would, in all probability, fall away. And I would actually go further. I would say, certainly, you would fall away if not for the grace of God working in you in that way. But Sproul continues and says, But God's decree is immutable. His sovereign purpose to save his elect from the foundation of the world is not frustrated by our weakness. End quote. Think about the logic of this for a moment. If God has sovereignly chosen certain sinners to be saved in Christ, effectually called them to himself, regenerated their hearts, given them repentance that turns them to Christ, given them faith which joins them to Christ, once and for all time declared them righteous, just, 
on the basis of the double imputation which takes away their sin and credits Christ's righteousness to them, adopts them as his own children, grows the seed of practical righteousness in them through the grace of sanctification, ordains good works in which they walk. How could we logically, how could we biblically reach any other conclusion but that he preserves his saints to the end? Could the decree of God fail? Could those to whom God has given a new heart that desires the things of God turn away? Could the faith which is given by God and joins sinners to Christ fail? Could those whose sins, past, present, and future, have been paid for and who have received the perfect righteousness of Christ on their accounts ever be considered unrighteous? In short, does Scripture lie? Are the gifts and calling of God revocable after all? No. Jesus said, Scripture cannot be broken. It is not even a possibility. And Scripture tells us in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, He's talking to the Philippian church. So he who began a good work in you, church, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Certainly he will do it. Chapter 17, section 2 of the confession, our confession, 1689, gives the basis for this blessing of the covenant. It says, This perseverance of the saints does not depend on their own free will, but on the unchangeableness of the decree of election, which flows from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father. It is based on the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and union with Him, the oath of God, the abiding of His Spirit, the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace. The certainty and infallibility of their perseverance is based on all these things. What needs to be understood is that the perseverance of the saints is a blessing received from God, not a work performed which obligates God. We do not earn perseverance any more than we earn any of the other blessings of the new covenant. As Burkhoff states, quote, it is because God never forsakes his work that believers continue to stand to the very end, end quote. The denial of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is not an affront to the saints, as I think most proponents of it believe it to be. Um, The idea is always, how could you arrogantly believe that you will persevere without some sort of special revelation. Maybe you will, but in this point in time, you don't know the future. You're not God. How, How could you be so sure so that the thought is okay it's an insult to the integrity of the saints who believe that but that's not the case rather it is an insult to the integrity of God how could we say that God should lose any that he has purposed to save Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. And that's John 6, 37 through 40, if you want the reference. <clears throat> to say that just one, just one of God's elect saints could fall away and perish is to say Jesus Christ failed in his mission from the Father. It is to say Jesus didn't pay it all after all. It is to say he is an inefficient and ineffective Savior. It is to say the Father failed to bring about his decree. It is to say the Spirit failed to persevere, to preserve the faith that he planted in the saints. In short, it is to call God a failure and a liar 
It is, at best, to approach blasphemy and more likely to kick down the door and run headlong into it. Fortunately, I'm taking it light on the Armenian brethren tonight. Um, <laughs> commenting on 1 Peter 1.5, which says that uh, by God's power we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Charles Hodge said this, quote, It will be seen that the apostle does not rest the perseverance of the saints on the indestructible nature of faith or on the imperishable nature of the principle of grace in the heart or on the constancy of the believer's will, but solely on what is out of ourselves. Perseverance, he teaches us, is due to the purpose of God, to the work of Christ, to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and to the primal source of all the infinite, mysterious, and immutable love of God. We do not keep ourselves. We are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. End quote. Um, so, we're about to turn to some proof texts for the new covenant blessing of the perseverance of the saints. But before we do that, any discussion on any of that? Take the silence as a no. Okay. <clears throat> so our first text, Romans chapter 5. Uh, and we will be looking at verses 9 through 11. So Romans chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. All right. <clears throat> it says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Okay, Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> and we are looking at the golden chain and beyond. Uh, starting in verse 28, and we're going to go through the end of the chapter. So Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28 and going through verse 39, it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, and that word really means Loved beforehand. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So the predestination is to a certain thing. Particularly to be conformed to the image of his Son. Okay? Well, if we don't ever actually get conformed to the image of his Son. But we were among this group that God foreloved. God failed. God lied. But we know that that's not the case. We know God cannot lie. We know that God never fails in his purpose. So it says, uh, for the, uh, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we uh, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And nowhere in there did he lose a one. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is, uh, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, including the sin that Christ has already paid for, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Alright, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, we're looking at verses 4 through 9, but particularly focusing on 8 and 9. I just wanted to kind of back up to make sure we had the context. Really, we're looking at verses 8 and 9, but we're going to start in 4. I'll give you a sec to turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 4. All right, it says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5, and uh, particularly looking at verses 23 and... 24. <clears throat> so 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 23 and 24. It says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And then one more passage, Hebrews chapter 6. And um, particularly looking at verses 13 through 20. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. All right, it says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. For when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of of his character, of his purpose, excuse me, he guaranteed it with an oath. So he made a promise, then he made an oath. Okay? So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place beyond, or behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, <clears throat> what I'm hoping you're seeing in every single one of these texts is it, number one, affirms 
perseverance of the saints. And it, number two, roots it in the promise, in the word, in the integrity of God. Okay? It in no way, shape, or form roots it in us at all. It's all rooted in God. And so that's what I was meaning, what I said, what I said earlier, that it is not an affront to us. It's an affront to the one who keeps us. Okay? The one who preserves us. All right. <clears throat> um, anything on perseverance of the saints before we move to this next part? All right. The next and very related uh, blessing, and really that last passage was kind of a good segue into this because it also touches this subject. Uh, the next blessing of the new covenant that we're going to consider is the assurance of the saints. <clears throat> the Roman Catholic religion's canons on justification from the Council of Trent just to give you an idea, Council of Trent is around the same time as the Reformation, okay? Council of Trent, in fact, is in response to the Protestant Reformation. That was the whole purpose. So this uh, Council of Trent is, is a response to the Protestant Reformation. Canon 16 um, on the canons on justification says this, quote, If anyone saith that he will for certain of an absolute and infallible certainty have that great gift of perseverance unto the end, unless he have learned this by special revelation. Let him be anathema, that is, accursed, end quote. I wanted to read that to you so you know I'm not taking anything out of context. I'm not putting words in anybody's mouth. That's their Document that is their counsel, that is what they hold to to this day as the infallible doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. So, <clears throat> and are those called canons? Uh, and they in that case, them, and, yes. And they so, they them. have several different topics that they addressed. Mm -hmm. This is specifically the canons on justification, okay. Um, but they hold that in the same regard as Scripture. I'm they do. Okay. They do, yes. yes because the uh, authority of the teaching authority of the church yeah. is said to be on the same level as the Scripture, but that also means they get to define what Scripture is, so really it's the church. Right. Sola Ecclesia. Um, <clears throat> anyway, uh, in fact, Roman Catholicism believes it to be arrogant presumption that we could have absolute and infallible assurance of salvation without a special individualized revelation from God. In other words, if an angel didn't appear or you couldn't see Jesus above or whatever re revelation, whatever method it is, um, unless you got that, because they'll grant you that one, unless you got that, it's arrogant presumption to assume that you're going to be one of the ones that persevere. Now, I will say, they do believe in a type of perseverance of the saints. What they're saying is, we don't know who that is that's going to persevere. They do agree it's a gift, okay? Um, so I don't want to mischaracterize them. They do believe some saints have the gift of perseverance. However, they also believe there are truly saved people that are currently saints in the sense of set apart unto justification that do not, will not be given the gift of perseverance to the end and therefore they will eventually fall away and thus how could you know infallibly without a special revelation that you will persevere? How could you have that assurance? That's the idea. What is the point of salvation if you don't persevere? <clears throat> so you know, of course, I agree with you. But, um, so the idea is that you want to essentially merit, you want to be building up merit for yourself. Um, because you're going to uh, not want to go to purgatory, first of all. Um, second of all, once you get to heaven, you know, you're going to want to rank as high as possible. So it's basically uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I mean, and I will say... Later on, not on this one, later on, we will kind of get into that whole... Indulgences and all. Well, they do have indulgences. Indulgences tend to be to try to get less time for either self or a loved one 
uh, at purgatory. Yeah. But the, we'll, we'll get into the whole thing about rewards once we get to heaven later. All right. So I'm not going to address that right now, but we will address it. So let me get this straight. You can be saved for a period of time and merit points? Kind of. Okay. Now, all of this is gracious, you mind you. Sure. See, you can't merit it without the grace of God being infused, poured into your heart, okay? So it's not, uh, it's not that I do this all on my own. It's not Pelagianism. Right. Um, it's more like semi-Pelagianism because God and myself, we cooperate. God pours the grace into my heart by the sacrament of baptism. But it's left up to me to do enough good. I have to, to cooperate okay. with the okay. grace infused into my heart, and that grace grows. If I do that, um, again, this is according to Roman Catholic theology. I'm not teaching this. Um, but <clears throat> according to that, yes, it's infused into the soul. And as long as we cooperate with it, it, it grows, it extends, okay? Um, it can be damaged by venial sin, which is white lies or, you know, these little sins that we, uh, peccadillos, that's what, these little sins we all do. Everybody does that, right? Uh, <clears throat> it's not that big of a deal, even though it's a sin against the Holy God. It's not that big of a deal, right? The idea of mortal sin, though, okay, so I murdered somebody or I cheated on my wife or whatever horrible sin, right? That kills the grace that was infused into my heart. So now I have to go to the second plank of justification. Again, their word, not mine. The second plank of justification... Um, penance okay that's their teaching now I've gotten way off track back to assurance um, <laughs> but so this is what they teach as far as this is why you can never know until you actually die or get a special revelation that you will persevere in the faith okay um, because you can kill the grace that was infused okay you have to choose to cooperate with that grace um, the Roman Catholic Church does condemn, rightly so, Pelagianism is heresy, so it's not that we just work and earn our way in there. That's not what they're saying. They're saying we have to cooperate with the grace to then earn merit, okay? All right. <clears throat> now, is it true, though, that it is arrogant presumption to uh, have such an absolute and infallible assurance of salvation without the special revelation that they do give the exception for. In answering this question, I think it would be helpful to define what we mean when we say the assurance of salvation. Okay? In studying for this lesson, I read one Roman Catholic apologist who said on their denial of the assurance of salvation, quote, this doesn't mean we Catholics are not confident that God keeps his promises means simply that we must exercise caution, end quote. So they're not saying we can't have assurance. They're saying we can't have absolute infallible insurance. Uh, assurance, not insurance. We're not selling anything. <laughs> assurance, <clears throat> okay? Sam Waldron, in addressing this doctrine, rightly defines the assurance of salvation when he says this, quote, assurance of grace and salvation is not assurance that God's promises are true. Okay? That's what the Roman Catholics are arguing though, right? That's not what it is. It is assurance that they are ours. It is knowing that oneself is saved and will be saved. End quote. So the idea there, of course, is justified now, and eventually glorified later, okay? So saved from uh, the effect of sin, the, the, the blot, the spot of sin, and then in glorification, saved from sin itself, okay? Now Go ahead. Is, now <clears throat> is, is Paul uh, not uh, actually um, telling us that basically we need to uh, constantly uh, introspect uh, and make sure that we are... Make our calling an election sure. There you go. Yeah. Uh, yes, he is. Okay. He absolutely is. All right, so basically the situation is that uh, uh, what kind of uh, difference then is, uh, uh, is in question here? Okay, so... <clears throat> 
first thing I'll say is that's actually one of the arguments that the Roman Catholic apologists use. Is well, that I'm sorry. Said, no, you're good because we're, we're, we're going to keep addressing it as we go. I so that is a, a valid thing to bring up because that's scripture. I know. Um, so hold that thought. We're getting there. <laughs> okay. Um, <clears throat> all right. Uh, both the Roman Catholic and the Christian would agree that God keeps his promises. All right. I just read for a Roman Catholic. I read from a Reformed Baptist. Both of them would agree. God keeps his promises. That's not what's in question. The issue is whether we can know for sure that those promises apply to us. That's the issue. So you've heard the Roman Catholic position on the matter. Now compare and consider what the 1689 Confession asserts starting about halfway through chapter 18, section 1, and going through the end of section 2. If you're wanting to follow along, it starts with those who truly believe. I'm going to give you a second to find it. Chapter what? Chapter eighteen, section one. All right. <clears throat> it says, "Those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love Him sincerely, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before Him, may be certainly assured in this life that they are in a state of grace. They may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, and this hope will never make them ashamed." This certainty is not merely an inconclusive or likely persuasion based on a fallible hope. It is an infallible assurance of faith founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. It is also built on the inward evidence of those graces of the Spirit about which promises are made. It is further based on the testimony of the Spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God. As a fruit of this assurance, our hearts are kept both humble and holy, end quote. In other words, the witness of sacred scripture is that believers can and should have an infallible assurance of salvation. This is a new covenant blessing secured by and in Christ. However, that does not mean that a lack of assurance necessarily means a person is not in the covenant and not saved. And so I want to be very clear about that. If there is a lack of assurance, it does not therefore mean you're not saved. Okay? Right. That is not what I'm saying. Yes, but the first John uh, 5, uh, 12 uh, is saying that basically the situation is that, uh, uh, that you can know, uh, not hope, not wish, not no. guess. That's right. You can know, but, you can we, know, but we also but, have to be but cautious. It's, it's, it's the, the, his spirit witnessing with your spirit. True. And that's what the confession's referring back to is actually that passage. So right. yeah, absolutely, you're right on. What, what there's also there's also the caution of Matthew seven. We have to be caught. those people I think were had some assurance. No, no, that's, uh, that's yes. right. No. Yeah. Oh I yes, mean, there's false know. assurance. There, there is. Yes, there is. Right. <laughs> you were casting out yeah, uh, demons yes. in in, right. my, in your name. Uh, right. I, so, I said I never knew you. Let right. me go back. So what we just read addresses that, though, because right. you're right. There is a false assurance. So let me uh, let me go back and let me reread this in the confession, okay, and make sure we catch this. This certainly is not merely an incl- inconclusive or likely persuasion on a fallible hope. It is an infallible assurance of faith. Here we go. Founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel, it is also built on the inward evidence of those graces of the Spirit about which promises are made. It is further based on the testimony of of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits, which is, that's what Ken's referring to, that we are the children of God as a fruit of this assurance. Our hearts are kept both humble and holy. So the kind of assurance you're talking about is based on arrogance. Uh, yes. This right. is not. Um, this is based on the opposite of that. This is based on an understanding that I am completely devoid of righteousness, but Christ is giving me Which brings in the perseverance of the saints because that humility yes. on your knees that it is Christ yes. that you and not you keeps you humble. I told you they were interrelated. And on top of that. Absolutely. So, um, again, the witness of sacred scriptures that believers can and should have an infallible assurance of salvation. Okay? But again, if you don't, it doesn't mean you're not saved. All right? R.C. Sproul explains, quote, 
We do not have to know that we are saved in order to be saved. And I will add to that, praise God, because I have not always had the assurance of salvation uh, throughout my Christian life. So um, this particular topic is very um, pertinent, I think, um, very relevant to my own journey. But uh, Sproul continues and says, This is what the confession means when it says the assurance does not belong to the essence of faith. Uh, And we're going to discuss that a little bit more shortly. He says, Assurance is a fruit of faith and may indeed ultimately should accompany faith, but assurance is not an essential of saving faith in that we may be saved without it. For example, personal trust in Christ is an essential of saving faith. Any faith that lacks such trust is not saving faith because it lacks an essential element. Remember, the three essential ingredients of saving faith, we went over that. Uh, Sproul is referring here to the fiducia, yes, still fun to say, fiducia or personal trust element. Okay, remember we have to have the knowledge, right, we have to assent, and we have to trust, okay. Sproul continues, Full assurance is not an automatic fruit of conversion, nor is it necessarily an immediate fruit. Though I would add that it could be. Okay, Assurance could be an immediate fruit, but it doesn't have to be. The believer may be in a state of saving grace for a long time before attaining assurance, but attaining it is not a remote possibility. It is an imminently attainable and surely desirable. End quote. So Sproul was commenting on the corresponding section of the Westminster Confession in chapter 18, section 3, which in the 1689 Confession states this, This infallible assurance is not such an essential part of faith. That is, it may not always be fully experienced alongside faith, but true believers may wait a long time and struggle with many difficulties before obtaining it. Yet, with the enabling of the Spirit to know the things freely given to them by God, they may attain this assurance using ordinary means appropriately without any extraordinary revelation. Roman Catholic Church. Uh, Therefore, it is the duty of all to be as diligent as possible to make their calling and election sure. In this way, their hearts may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, in love and thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience. These effects are the natural fruits of this assurance. Get that? They're fruits of assurance. Okay? Not the cause of assurance. They're the fruits of assurance. Thus, it does not at all encourage believers to be negligent. End quote. Going back to that, once saved, always saved. Now you are required to do it, you know, no, no, far from it, no. It's not an arrogant assurance. It is a humble assurance that motivates us to live for Christ. So now you've heard the rejection of Rome and the affirmation of the reform concerning the infallible assurance of salvation. Let's turn now to the scripture. And so bear with me on this one. Uh, There's a... Good bit of reading from a particular book. <laughs> First John. <clears throat> Let's start in First John chapter 5, actually. And then we're going to flip back to the front of the book. Okay, but I want to start with First John chapter 5. This is verse uh, 13. So, First John chapter 5, verse 13. This is at the end of the epistle. Okay, he, the Apostle John, he says, I write these things to you, church, who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Not think, not hope, not wonder, <laughs> not kind of sort of have an inclination. You may know you have that, eternal I life. I don't have that patented, so don't you, you're <laughs> Ken was anticipating, that's why. <laughs> but yes, uh, the entire purpose of this epistle was for the assurance of the saints that we may know we are in Christ and possess eternal life in Him. So, don't tell me this ain't a biblical doctrine. There's a whole letter in there about it. 
Um, I would encourage you to read John's Gospel and then his epistles and pay attention to his emphasis on the knowledge that comes through Christ. Over and over again, you'll see, you say such and such on the basis of what you think you know. We say what we know. Or I write this to you so that you may know. Okay? Over and over, John has quite an emphasis on knowledge. (laughs) I think this is for a particular reason. I think it was a polemic against maybe proto-Gnosticism, which is from the Greek word gnosis, which is basically the word for knowledge. So it's like a secret knowledge, right? Like you are lower level Christians, but we Gnostics have this higher level, which actually was wrong anyway. So I think that's... that is at least factoring in uh, when he's writing his works that um, I don't think it's maybe strictly an apologetic, but I do think that is a factor in there because in 1 John, he addresses these people as antichrists. Okay, He directly addresses them in 1 John. I think that's actually in the background in all of his works except maybe Revelation, but then again, maybe not. Maybe it is in Revelation, but I'm pretty certain that it is in the three epistles and the gospel, uh, according in, to John. In the gospel, uh, the uh, the most prominent word in in the whole gospel of John is belief. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the situation is that uh, uh, it is. I mean, all right, you're saying to know uh, is uh, in for, in the in the uh, letters, but basically yes. uh, the uh, in. In the Gospel of John, uh, it's belief. Yes. I mean, he just constantly is going back to that. And another thing I would point out to you, okay, regarding John's writings, and this isn't a side, okay, but regarding John's writings, his last writing that's in the Bible is known as the Revelation of Jesus Christ. <laughs> that's the name of the book. It's a revelation. It's so you may know. Um, so, uh, anyway, but particularly pay attention in the epistle of 1 John where he repeatedly states his purpose, that you may know, okay? Speaking of that, let's do that now. Um, go to 1 John, we'll go back to chapter 2, all right? And we're just going to kind of go through this really quickly, if I can go through really quickly. Um, 1 John chapter 2. First, we're going to look at verses 3 through 6. Then we'll skip down to verses 28 and 29. So 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, it says, And by this we know that we have come to know Him, particularly Christ. Okay, now understand, to know Christ is to have eternal life. Okay, this is not just a mere head knowledge. Okay, this is an intimate knowledge. This is a... I know you as my close companion kind of thing. Okay? So, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. There's one way we can have assurance and we can know. All right, skip down to uh, verse 28. Uh, So verses 28 and 29, same chapter, verses 28 and 29. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. All right, just keep on going. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears... We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. See that though? Hopes in him therefore purifies himself. Even the purify himself part is based in Christ. All right. Um, 
Go down to verse 14, same chapter, verse 14. It says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. All right. Uh, Same chapter. Go down to verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth. Who is the truth? Jesus. And reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe, there you go, Ken, that believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Alright, chapter 4, verse 13, and going through verse 19. It says, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For who, uh, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Um, then let's go back to chapter 5. <clears throat> and we're going to look at verses 13 through 19. We already read 13, but we're just going to start that whole passage again. Verses, excuse me, 9 through 12. I was looking at the wrong thing. 9 through 12. My bad. 5, 9 through 12. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. And then finally, verses 19 and 20, it says, We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. You got a whole letter about the assurance of salvation right there. You got all kind of basis there. Okay? Basis in... Assurance based in the fact that we have such good works, but more even basis in the fact that we have His Spirit testifying to our spirit that we are His children. Um, speaking of John, let's actually go to John's Gospel. Uh, John chapter 20. This is verse 31. I'm just going to back up and actually read 30. So chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose statement of the book of John. There you go. Yep, absolutely. Um, 
We're about out of time, but I think I can get these last few passages in. Okay, Romans chapter 8. And verses 14 through 17. So I'm just going to quickly read through these. That way I make sure we get them in before we run out of time. So it says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's an intimate title. That's like Daddy or Papa or whatever you would intimate title you want to call for Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Does that sound like you need a special revelation, or does the Holy Spirit testify to your soul? That's the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul about Himself. You understand? So, uh, no, we, we don't have to have a special revelation beyond this. Um, Okay, Colossians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 7. It says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ." in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. But there, in that passage, you see it is explicitly stated that you reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. All right. Um, 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, it was Colossians 2, verses 1 through 7. Um, this is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you who by God's power get this who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice though now for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not uh, now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Did you get that? Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And then finally, Second Peter chapter 1. Um, again, starting in verse 3. <laughs> 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3, <clears throat> and then going through verse 11. And this will be, we'll read this, and then I'll pray, and we'll, we'll dismiss, okay? Um, it says, His divine power has granted to us all the things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfaithful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way... There will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Okay, so we are to make our calling and election sure. What does it mean to be sure? I know it. If I'm sure about it, I know it, right? So that's the reason, that's what we're making our calling and election. We're making it sure. Okay, we have um, assurance about it, okay? All right, uh, I have held you guys over four minutes. I apologize. Let's pray and we'll dismiss, okay? We'll live. All right, let's pray. Father, uh, we come to you in the name of our Lord Jesus, and we are very thankful for the things we've discussed tonight. Um, we are very thankful for all of the blessings of the new covenant that we've discussed up to this point. Um, but certainly we are thankful that you preserve us, you keep us, that the work that you've begun in our hearts, you will surely bring it to completion. And this will be for your great and glorious namesake. It will not be for ours, though we certainly benefit from it. We're also thankful that you do grant to your saints the assurance of salvation. I pray that you would help us to all uh, obtain the full assurance of salvation that we've discussed tonight. Um, we know that it's not necessarily the case that we would all have assurance, but it is necessarily the case that we should seek it. So help us to seek it diligently uh, if we don't already possess it. Help us to sure it up if we do. And we pray all of these things that Christ might be honored and glorified, and we pray it in his name. Amen. Amen.